you're listening to Not Many of You Should Become Teachers, a podcast that explores the world of K-12 education as it intersects with the Christian faith. You might call us extreme moderates. We're skeptics who try not to be cynics and are allergic to cheap rhetoric. Welcome to the show. location from Grand Rapids, Michigan. First time that we've ever left our country, let alone our province, to record an episode. Well, not just to record an episode, but here we are at the Shaping Christian Learning Conference that's uh, being um, led or organized by the Kyers Institute here at Calvin University, as well as another organization called Inch that I'm now learning about. Uh, and tonight we just were able to hear from Luke Bretherton, who is the, uh, the first plenary session. Uh, and he talked about a number of things. So we're just going to uh, put some installments of takeaways about what it is that we we hear and whatnot, and uh, how we can move forward with that. So, Dave, what's like a major takeaway that you have when it comes to uh, what Luke was talking about? Well, besides being massively uh, exhausted after a full day, and uh, th- I mean this is the first day kickoff, and we're uh, we're winding it down. Looking forward to a few more days of this. I was just totally taken away, Riley. Um, with how this whole thing was framed, uh, I think around um, Luke Bretherton was using the language of shalom and of r- restoring. Uh, we were having this conversation, we were just standing outside. Um, he didn't once use the word kingdom, but that was implied there as well. And so the world is it as it is and the world as it should be. So we're... we're, we're driven by this vision of the should um, and he talked a lot about agency like like the ability to act and the ability to um, to to enact change and that uh, I think I wrote this down here we were both furiously taking notes uh, the idea that education is uh, is is a method and a mode by which change can happen so um, thinking about as, as humans, this, this basic need, or two, ba- I think he called them assumptions, two basic assumptions for human flourishing, which is this vision of shalom, and we would suggest that that's, a, that that's ultimately a Christian vision, that it has two parts. The assumptions are there's a need for change in the world, the world isn't as it should be, and that we humans have agency. And that we and and so it's not just deterministic. Um, that was that was a lot of fun. I'll, I'll throw it back to you. And what did you what did you think, Riley, of all of this? Well, Luke was using uh, natural imagery to show what change agents are meant to look like as our, our students as agents of change, and he specifically was using the word like the 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 word metabolism or metabolic, uh, a, a metabolic manifestation of, of how our students are enmeshed in change. And that, that sounds very, it, for me, it, it took a little bit of like, what, what, what is that? What does that mean? But essentially coming to the realization that are we, anyone are enmeshed in relationships that are human and non-human, both in the natural, but like in, in our natural world, um, we are completely in the middle of those things and that we live in the via, in the, in the in-between and that we ask ourselves, well, what is going on here in the middle and uh, w- w- what's taking place here uh, 
what is going on around me? What is going on here? And he says that the verb that we use when we're talking about that is listening. And he frames that as a sacred act going back to the Shema, hero Israel, uh, the Lord our God is one. So um, he says that we shouldn't begin with our, our fears and strategies, but rather we should listen. And be, recognizing being in the middle and recognizing what is going around us uh, helps us sh- um, frame ourselves as agents of change, agents of what he would call social, political, economic, whatever change, um, instead of um, designing blueprints um, that then create, oh, like uh, maybe, to, maybe he wouldn't use these words, but like a cookie cutter type of student um, or, or a hero type of student that doesn't necessarily listen to what it is that is going on, but has achieved something or achieved mastery. They talked a lot about mastery language. These are things that I'm still learning about and, and playing around with in terms of my own understanding, but um, definitely asking in this natural connection of enmeshed relationships, what is going on around me? So, yeah. This also ultimately is shaping Christian learning. That's the name of this, uh, this conference. And it comes back to the idea of what, what is specifically Christian about this? I mean, design thinking and curriculum, um, you know, seeing a world that is flourishing, these are not uniquely Christian ideas. Uh, what I appreciated tonight was, again, back what you mentioned, Riley, about the, the language of listening as a Christian posture. Um, I'd never thought of the, the Shema, you know, hear, O Israel, the, the hearing the, and, and hearing the, uh, the word. That's really powerful. I think one other thing that that Bretherton did tonight, I like it. It's like Luke Bretherton, Doctor Bretherton, Bretherton. Uh, just yeah. so many, so many, um, so many things sort of rattling around in the yeah, brain I here. Yeah, called by his first name, didn't I? It's all good. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed it, to. Do no, that. no worries. Um, okay. The second part of it was uh, what. Bretherton did with the language of conversion. I thought that was fascinating. Um, he takes this uh, this word or this concept, what he calls the the language or the vocabulary that the church uses to describe this process of change. Because again, um, to be change agents, to um, to seek change in our world is not uniquely Christian. But what the church calls that and has made it individualistic is the personal conversion story, right? That um, he he mentioned things like the altar call or you know the yeah, come to G- yeah. The, the the there's a colonizing aspect of that, um, but this this idea of converting, he used he used it in the sense of wanting to reclaim it, or he used this really fancy academic phrase, Riley. He said he wanted it to become full-orbed, so like this full spherical shape, like not just a part, not just a slice of what it means to um, to understand the nature of being converted. It's not sort of a one-time thing. And he goes back to that language of process, uh, the, the idea of in the middle, we are meeting students. One person had it. There was a question from the floor. There was this big Q and A section at the end, and one person asked about, uh, "Well, what happens when I have a student that I just see for, you know, fifteen weeks of a semester? I mean, I teach in a semestered context. Riley, you have a little bit more runway when you have sort of a year you get to spend with the students. It's still only a, a, a sliver of time. If we're talking K to twelve education, we we're a small segment of that." 
is to recognize that the student has been in form, formation, formative process prior to us, not a blank slate when they come in our door. And when we leave, this is connecting again to some of our other conversations we've been having, uh, you know, about don't expect closure. Um, it, uh, there's almost an element of that is we're passing the baton on. So uh, joining with, participating with students where they're at, um, seeking to inspire them, uh, to help form them, we're being formed ourselves. So there's there's so many layers to this. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Dave here back in British Columbia. And wow, what a week. Quite a whirlwind coming back from the Kyers Institute and the Shaping Christian Learning Conference, uh, along with Riley, and also traveled with the chapel director of the high school at the school we teach at. And we just had a wonderful time uh, away and encountering uh, ideas and sharing meals with one another with um, new friends and uh, fellow educators. Most of them, of course, were were not classroom teachers. There were a lot of scholars, you know, professors, that type of thing. And uh, we just kept referring to ourselves, rightly so, I would say, as practitioners. And uh, and so made some cool connections there. Just wanted to kind of debrief, decompress, and thinking through some of the things, what it might mean for our podcast conversation. And yeah, coming coming here at the the end of the week and scrolling through my notes after being thrust back into a classroom, it's it's quite a quite a profound thing. keeps keeps you grounded in a sense. I will say that one of the sessions that I was able to attend was called "Taking Civic Formation to Church," which is kind of an interesting phrase to begin with. The idea of civic formation really just meaning forming good public citizens? What does it mean to be a citizen of a particular regime? Our regime, of course, would be Canada. And I know we have listeners who are in the US. I believe we even have some listeners overseas as well. So wherever your context is, uh, how do you train for living in uh, a particular political arrangement? And what does that look like for the church? One of the things Riley and I and uh, our colleague Chris, we kept talking about was we're not just practitioners, but we are responsible for being translators of a, of a larger conversation. This civic formation conversation uh, featured uh, a local pastor. He was in the Michigan area and uh, also had a connection to an organization called the Center for Public Justice, which, was, um, which is based in Washington, D.C. And there was a, another gentleman, and he works for the Colossian Forum, which is also based in Grand Rapids. And they develop these programs for approaches to civic formations about faith and citizenship. And um, this is not, not partisan. This is not, uh, you know, not a conservative thing or a liberal thing, but it's basically how to have these effective political conversations. So that's sort of all I'll say about, about that uh, and bring it to one of the things I heard, because we wanted to translate that into a, a Christian school context. What would that look like for students? I teach social studies, but this can go beyond social studies. And the phrase that one of them used, I, I do forget which of the of the two guys who were sharing, but you talked about polarization. And I, I don't think you have to s- scroll too far into you know your social media feed 
or just take a look at the news or what have you to realize we live in a sort of a very polarized time. As a historian and somebody who studies the past and, and tries to relate that to students, I don't know if there's ever been a time when there's not been polarization. I think it's just a just a degree, uh, a spectrum issue. But man, are we really feeling it? And so this this person shared that polarization has been colonizing, using his words, colonizing non-political spaces. What he meant was this polarization is dividing people in the church. So political issues and um, single issue voting, uh, the, you know, the political sphere is dividing uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, Christian unity. It's sort of tearing at that. And I, and I thought that was an interesting observation, not just from the perspective that I attempt to be nonpartisan and, and, and sort of rise above the fray and not, I'm not touting one particular party line, um, but even just the assumption that the church is non-political, um, to, to view, to view church or to view our, our classrooms as, uh, well, no, we don't want to be partisan. We don't want to be of a particular tribe or a party stripe. So, uh, nothing we do is political. And I probably would push back a little bit on that. And, um, one of the, one of the, the ways that this was resolved actually from the same presentation was a, a, a project that around Christian citizenship called political discipleship. I thought that was a fascinating thing. And um, if you want to go check out political discipleship.org uh, just ask this question, like your political autobiography, getting to think about what it, what it means to be a citizen and just re- basically how to, how to talk to one another, how to focus around, um, what can we, how, how can we agree to disagree uh, in the in the realm of unity? And then how can, what can we study and then how can we act on it? And I think this is a wonderful sort of pedagogical approach, um, thinking as a teacher, right, is we want, we want the head, we want the heart, we want the hands. We want to be active, we want to um, enact or embody some of these things we're talking about and not just have it in the realm of the cognitive. So, um Taking civic formation to church uh, certainly was one of my uh, one of my highlights. We also heard from Rhonda McEwen, who is recently at Regent College, which is here. You've heard it on the podcast, and uh, she is is a recent transplant to the Regent community in in shaping Christian learning, and she was focused on cultivating faith in a global context and and brought a wealth of uh, of knowledge and experience of having lived cross culturally etc and uh, she was she basically took you know western church to task and uh, spoke of of understanding and learning from uh, religious and knowledge systems that are are not dominant in our in our modes um, again the the danger with these conversations all the time and we're not just here to critique them but it's easy to, to to gravitate towards Western equals bad and non-Western good, or you know, we have a deficiency and we need to we need to fix that, which is all true. Uh, one of the the things that can happen though is we can have a blind spot, and, and I think the blind spot in in this context and one of the questions that was asked, and I'm going to give uh, Professor McEwen a, a bit of a pass on this, as, as admittedly she's relatively new to Canada, um, but a lot of the conversation around holistic formation and and learning from other knowledge systems in the back in the back of my mind uh, i'm thinking indigenization i'm thinking 
decolonization in a Canadian context. Actually, I think Riley was sitting, he might want to comment on this. He was, he was sitting in another row. We got separated at a coffee break or whatever. And, uh, you know, doing what you shouldn't do in a panel discussion. We, we texted back and forth, but we both wrote indigenous, you know, question mark. That became, became an issue. I was able to ask Professor McEwen a question about that, and she definitely did acknowledge that indigenization is something uh, that she wants to look into more, recognizing even here in our BC curriculum. Uh, that we can we can learn, and this goes back to some of the stuff we've talked about before. You know, on this podcast, um, if you're a, a listener of our show, you know we've talked about not having fear uh, of uh, not letting fear drive our pedagogy in terms of what we do or don't do, and what we choose to embrace and what we choose to maybe ignore. One final thing I'll highlight is the plenary session that happened the second evening. And it was a wonderful time to basically center voices that we don't often get to hear or we know we, we know that maybe we should. And in the vein of that non-Western, this was, this was an evening to showcase some African voices. And so it was a, a panel on African Christian Designs for Learning. So it featured a professor of theology and philosophy at a theological college, which is in Nigeria. That's Dr. Tursur Abin. Uh, next to him was Dr. Faith Nguru, who uh, was a lovely woman, and, and we've so enjoyed getting to have dinner with her the first evening. She is a professor, also an academic vice president, I believe, of Daystar University, which is in Nairobi, Kenya. And the, the closest thing I could probably compare it to, I mean, look up Daystar. They are on Twitter as well. And uh, we're retweeting us as we were, uh, I think the time zone was, was uh, in their favor and, uh, and loved hearing that we were, um, we were spending an evening with, with Dr. Faith and Guru. Uh, Daystar would be the closest, would be a liberal arts university, not unlike Trinity Western. And third and finally, was uh, a professor of practical theology and looked at um, her role was uh, ministerial formation, so basically training pastors, and she studied that as well. Um, Dr. Marilyn Naidu from the University of South Africa, very different context, um, and and spoke of her own experience and spoke of of her nation's like the national trauma of truth and reconciliation coming out of out of apartheid. And uh, so uh, distinct African voices, um, each raising some of the challenges for Christian design and for learning. Um, Dr. Aubin in Nigeria around mentorship and the importance of relationship. And, uh, you know, it was very moving just to see, you know, photographs he would share of um, the students that he's basically discipling. Uh, and he's part of that, that process. Uh, Dr. Nguru uh, in Kenya uh, spoke of just some of the challenges uh, around uh, diverse student body and could could really sense that um, they were grappling with sort of the, the composition of the type of students that come to their institution and um, the, the degree to which maybe they're taking faith seriously um, down to practical things, also political things, right, about funding and how, they're, how the university is funded. So um, very knowledgeable, passionate about education, and uh, it was fantastic to hear from her and just, just to let them have the floor and uh, for us to sit back and to, to not prescribe, but to be listening. And I think that's very important. 
And I would say the one that packed the most punch, the one that uh, was was quite sobering to hear, was uh, Dr. Naidu from the University of South Africa, specifically dealing with um, apartheid. And the reason for that is the Christian churches were largely uh, responsible uh, and propped up that um, that system of injustice and of segregation, and just the legacy of that um, could could really sense. Uh, both both uh, a righteous anger um, that was fueling her desire to see restoration, to see justice. Um, also, she was sympathetic to deep reservations in her country uh, around faith and around uh, the role of the Christian church. And uh, so sort of pulled no punches uh, on that. So there was a, a time for them to share. Uh, we ducked out. Uh, the time was getting late and we'd have a very full day. Um, so even though we didn't get to stay for the, um, the Q&A, uh, I, did, I did manage to thank uh, particularly Dr. Naidu from, from University of South Africa. So we'll link up. Uh, I'll make sure that it gets linked up on our website, um, who these people are, who we were listening to, and uh, just a wonderful time. So if I could sort of sign off on my section here, uh, I am I am deeply indebted to the Kyers Institute, to the people we met, uh, the the good laughs that we had, and the meals that we shared. I think the meals meal time communing around a uh, a conference buffet table is uh, some just some rich uh, rich conversations. So feeling uh, very fortunate and grateful uh, that the school that we teach at uh, allowed us to go. Thanks, Dave. Uh, as you can tell, Dave and I are recording these in separate sessions, just couldn't find the time to do it together, but we still get the chance to share our highlights. And since Dave did not cover the Practicing Faith survey, which was presented by David I. Smith, the uh, conference coordinator, and uh, um, other uh, other academics like Beth Green and Albert Chang, uh, because Dave did not go over that. He gave me the uh, the honor of being able to talk about that, which I will do in just a second, as there is one highlight uh, that I want to share before I jump into the Practicing Faith survey. Uh, and that was shared by Maxie Birch, who was um, a professor from John Brown University. And he was presenting about uh, teaching theology as a faith process. So uh, he teaches theology at a university, and he 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 broke down the message that most students hear when we talk about theology, and this is what he had said. The message that students hear is that theology is primarily ideas and best done alone as you read and do research. We learn about God best by thinking about him and learning doctrines that explain him. Christian faith is primarily about what we think and how we think, and the importance of thinking correctly. Faith is about orthodoxy. It's learning the difference between liberals and conservatives and deciding which one you are and why. He talked more about how that is an issue, and he broke it down that the thing that we need to remember is that theology is about the story. What story are we looking at? And that theology is never done alone. So those were two takeaways. And then uh, something pedagogical about how he teaches doctrine uh, is that He's trying to get away from the idea that it's done alone and it's all about thinking and thinking correctly. He says that you always need to start with questions, not answers. He always shows pictures when he's teaching doctrine and he always asks, 
what is the story here? What's going on here? So that was the takeaway. Thank you, Max, Dr. Maxi Birch, for sharing uh, about that. And now I get the honor of breaking down uh, three papers that were presented, one by Beth Green, one by David I. Smith, and one by Albert Chang. But the nice thing is that they were all connected as all three uh, scholars were looking at their practicing faith survey, which was all essentially about the assessment of faith and learning. Let me just begin by saying that this was a huge highlight of the conference. Being able to hear this is probably the best takeaway that um, I had from the Shaping Christian Learning Conference. But I also want to add that there was so much going on here. I think even just recently, Albert Albert Chang on Twitter said that this is just the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much just on this. Uh, and I will do my best to explain. Uh, and I've also um, typed up a bit of a summary and a spreadsheet that I will um, put into the what do you what do you call those things? The show notes, and we'll also put it on our website, notmanyofyou.com, that you could go and peruse after you listen. But I'm just going to do my best here. But um, um, Beth Green from Tyndale University College, David I. Smith from Calvin University, and Albert Chang of the University of Arkansas all got together, uh, and they were working on, well, at its core, the assessment of faith and learning. And they were trying to figure out, what, like, what does it look like to assess faith and learning? And it, traditionally, it's been a lot of uh, what it is that we want our students to know. What is the, do they understand the doctrine? Um, I think in David Smith's book, he even, uh, this is this is about a different thing, but he once talked about a quiz that tested out all the language that you need to speak reformed. Uh, and so often we just look for a doctrine check or we look for a knowledge check and then we um, assume that our students are spiritually formed. But David Smith says that actually... If we know that nine out of ten students in our in our in our school believe that Jesus is the Son of God, how do we know what to change in our English literature curriculum? And to that, I say, what a great question! How do we know how to teach Christianly if we already if we know that our students know who Jesus is? Does that actually change anything? So, um, as a result. This survey is supposed to take us one step closer to assessing who our students are supposed to be, not what are what we want our students to know. See, assessing knowledge of doctrine doesn't help us shape our practice in different subject areas. So this survey uh, looks for an explicit connection to student commitment through faith practices. And um, I'll break down the word practice in a moment, but uh, they differentiate faith practices from beliefs and behaviors. And as a result, Christian practices become a way for me, coming back into my middle school, that we can assess spiritual formation and then give us language to reflect on learning experiences uh, and then student um student formation. So let's just jump into this a little bit. David Smith talks about um, belief, behavior, and um, practices and how those can be very different things. He talks specifically about how you could have one person, and he uses the Eucharist as an example, you could have one person who loves to talk about all the different beliefs around taking communion. They know everything about every denomination's beliefs around the Eucharist. They can argue about it till the cows come home. They know it to its core. But at the end of the day, this person never takes the Eucharist. They know it all. They can speak the language. They know all these things, but they never actually take communion. On the other hand, you could have someone who 
is not the in the same knowledge category, but they absolutely love to eat bread and drink wine. And you see, these are two different uh, ideas. If we have someone who has Christian belief, potentially, or, or, or Christian um, knowledge and thoughts, and then we have someone else who has Christian behaviors, supposedly. And somewhere in the middle of those things, we have something called Christian practice. And that's really what we're looking to assess, because if we, we could assess someone's um, knowledge on the Eucharist, and we have that one person get straight A's on that spiritual formation test, but it doesn't tell us really anything about their spiritual formation, and it doesn't inform us as teachers. Same goes for the person who is just um, mowing down uh, bread and wine. So they define faith as not just being belief, and that is that is so important. Faith is not just belief, but it actually can manifest itself in Christian practices. And there are five strands of Christian practices. I don't know if they're strands or facets. I, I actually don't know what language to use for that, but this is, um, this is how they've broken it down. They've broken it down into the following. So there is intellectual practice, which is practices or Christian practices that enable truth-seeking, checking, and discipling the mind. Um, examples that they gave. And then uh, this was in Albert Chang's presentation, he had almost like I can statements, which in uh, in my context here in British Columbia, I can statements are all over our curriculum. What can our students do? Um, and this is uh, in also in the idea of faith practices, but some intellectual, intellectual practices could be some of the following, like I can consider different points of view to help form my judgment on an issue where others disagree. I can keep calm when my views are challenged. I can start conversations with others outside of school to share what I'm learning, or I can seek out readings, articles with a Christian perspective regarding what we are learning in class. So those are just some some ideas of intellectual Christian practice, and they've been broken down even into some subcategories like diligence or humility, a love for truth, and faith integration. The next one is called relational Christian practice, which is practice that's focused on the attentiveness of well-being of others in the school community. I think this is something that um, we sometimes focus very deeply on. It's uh, it's putting others others first, our relationships with our peers, our relationships with school staff. So some I can statements would be that I can encourage a struggling classmate, or I can thank my school janitor, my school custodian, uh, or I can interact respectfully with educational assistants or admin assistants, stuff like that. And then three more here. The next one is introspective Christian practice, which focuses on self-examination for discerning one's motivations. So, and I can't state that this is like, I think at its core, it's like, check your heart. I don't know if anybody uh, listening to the podcast knows John Christ, but John Christ is a comedian who um, has a lot of jokes about Christian evangelicalism. And, and he talks about, um, check your heart. You got to check your heart. But this introspective practice really is a lot of check your heart. And it's basically saying that I can check my motivations for what I do in school and I can offer my best effort as a gift to God. So checking, checking what it is that we're doing, checking for pride, checking for, um, checking our motivations. Second to last, we have benevolent Christian practice, which is practices that um, go beyond the school community. They're associated with seeking good of the wider community. And an I can statement could be that I can, uh, my classmates and I can discuss the needs of people who live in our community. And this might seem very strange, like, hey, like, what are we doing with this in our school? Like, aren't we supposed to be within our community? But uh, a connection that I was going to, I was able to make with the school that I work at is that we have something called our award of excellence in which 
which students have to take leadership opportunities outside of our classroom, outside of our school, and go take... Um, uh, go help in community service areas, whether that's um, helping clean up streams or helping uh, at community centers or whatnot, but um, looking at uh, our, our wider community and seeking good in those areas as well. I also think this has to do a lot with things like, um, like as we see uh, actually in a chapter of the Grand Paradox, which is coming up soon, um, they talk about uh, merging uh, or having righteousness and justice synonymous. And I think that benevolent Christian practice is deeply uh, entrenched in justice as we um, maybe like for another uh, example, we have a, a group of high school students at our school that will go and they will help um, with homeless people in a rougher area of town. And they're seeking justice and feeding these poor, poor people who can't feed themselves. And they are seeking good beyond our school community. So breaking down benevolent Christian practice, and then formative. Now this one comes up, I think maybe the most when we talk about spiritual formation, because formative practices are aimed at discipling the self to become a more faithful learner. Those could be individual or communal, but they're things like thinking about scripture to become a better student or um, meeting with peers or mentors to discuss spiritual growth. And it's really important stuff, but I've realized that as I've read this, like we are overwhelmed, at least in my experience with Christian education, with relational Christian practice and formative Christian practice, putting others first and reading your Bible and praying every day, which as you can see, they're still included. Um, but, uh, just, uh, knowing that there's more to that and seeing how we can expand ourselves and expand our practice was so, um, so, uh, so cool with this. Um, but let me break it down just a little bit more because I realized that there's some people that just heard me say five big words, intellectual, relational, benevolent, introspective, informative, and they, they have no idea what this is supposed to help us with or, or how does this help us assess or, or how does this help us teach and whatnot. But let me give you my personal takeaway. So here's the deal. After going through this presentation and hearing what these people are, uh, what these really, really well thought out, uh, scholars have been sharing. I see this as a new framework for my teaching as a Christian educator. As I look closer and I, and I see these terminologies, I see these different Christian practices as ways to form my learning experiences. So for example, when I am teaching math and I need students to work together this is a learning experience that could be framed in relational Christian practice. We do need to put each other first and see each other's needs more than our own if we're going to succeed in, in a uh, collaborative math activity. That gives me an opportunity to point to that as I'm teaching or to also just keep that in the back of my head and reflect on my practice and then see um, see how it is being affected in my classroom. Is that something that's being hit home? Are students leaving my lesson, even though it's a math lesson, are they leaving that lesson putting other people first in relational Christian practice? So for me, I think that's pretty cool. Like, I've been given this new framework. It's a Christian education framework that we can use to assess and frame. And it's not more things that I need to do. So often when we see biblical integration, it's like, oh, now you need to add a Bible verse to your to your lesson. Now you need to add um, the gospel into your lesson plans, which is really backwards because 
as we teach, we teach Christian lessons. It's not we make lessons Christian. Uh, and if you read David Smith on Christian teaching, I think you'll get so much more of that, which is awesome. But as, as I continue to reflect, I see something that I can just not, it's not more work. It's just a new way to see the way that I'm teaching uh, through the lens of intellectual Christian practice, relational, introspective, benevolent, and formative. Um, let me just go through maybe some of them and just give you some examples where I maybe see them in my context. Intellectual Christian practice, I felt connected most with the way that I teach my Bible class. Uh, you could also see that being formative because that's about it could be about spiritual growth. But when we're diving into doctrines and whatnot in teaching Bible, I think it's quite intellectual. But then not only focusing on like intellectual theology, but knowing that as we disciple our minds and as we disciple our thinking, the way that we think um, needs to be like Christian as well. And that's why uh, some of these examples were talking about like being calm when my views are challenged or um, considering other viewpoints. Those are those are also intellectual Christian practices that could transcend, um, a Bible, not could, definitely transcend just a Bible class. Um, but I already talked about relational. Uh, and I talked about benevolent Christian practice being like when um, I see students that are associated with groups or whatever that uh, deal with justice, like feeding the poor and whatnot, that's seeking good beyond the community, going and helping community services, seeking good beyond the community. And then um, introspective was really great. So uh, at our school, we have uh, athletics and our athletics team, like team name is broken down into an acronym that spells out, well, it doesn't spell, well, it spells out the team name, but then it also breaks down into different words. So things like like a, like an athlete at our school is respectful. An athlete at our school gives effort. And it all comes down to the idea of like checking your heart. Like when you are playing at athletics at our school, are you playing in humility? Are you playing in a way where you're giving your best effort to God? Are you being introspective? So all of those things point us towards introspective Christian practice. And I think that that could transcend athletics into other areas where we see excellence, whether that's in the arts, fine arts, music, or whatever. But um, being introspective in that is definitely something that transcends, um, yeah, transcends just thinking about spiritual formation or Bible class. And all of these things are just a way that we reframe the way that we're teaching. It's nothing to do with adding Bible verses to our lessons, which I think is just awesome stuff. And then finally, like this, this whole thing is about assessing uh, spiritual formation, which I think is, um, is really important at a Christian school. It's not just good education or by education by nice Christian people. We have to take a look at our students and we put our students first. And I think this is a huge connection to our British Columbia core competencies. In British Columbia, my context, Canada, we essentially want our students that when they graduate high school, if they didn't learn anything throughout K to 12, like this is a crass way to put it, but if they didn't learn anything throughout K to 12, we hope they leave with an ability to communicate. That's the first core competency to think second core competency and to have responsibility, both personal and social. And those are ways that we frame our lessons. We frame um, like here, if I have a math lesson and I need students to explain their thinking, we frame that around communication. I'm not teaching a lesson on communication, but I reframe what I'm teaching in a, in a sense that uh, students can understand now we are communicating. Or if there's an area where we need to be creative in our thinking, we frame that lesson around creative thinking. 
In the same way, we can do that with these lessons, and we can also reflect on those through self-assessment. The best way um, that the core competencies are assessed, or actually the only way in British Columbia, is through uh, reflective self-assessment. And for me, this is where I want to take this. I want to take this in my grade six classroom to a place where I could see grade six students looking at their term, looking at their learning, and then being able to pinpoint and reflect on moments where they showed one of these five strands of Christian practice. Being able to reflect on a time when they showed relational Christian uh, Christian practice, or when they were introspective for their own motivations, or were where they saw themselves grow spiritually in a formative way, um, that would be cool. We reflect all the time at our student-led conferences when students showcase their learning and they showcase how they've shown the core competencies. What a great way to showcase spiritual formation, to show some of these um, uh, these cool things instead of just showing your Bible test to show you how much you know about the Eucharist. Um, this is just so much more powerful. So that's where I'm going with this. And I'm so looking forward to hearing more about where the practicing faith survey is going. Um, as this is just the tip of the iceberg, but I've written up a summary, uh, on a Google sheet. Um, and then I will have that shared for you. And this is just, obviously I've written that it's my summary. Don't think that this is any official document, um, that was written up by the actual curators of the survey. That's not true. This is just my notes, um, that make it accessible for other people to see. Um, and everything that I've written down was, um, information that I took from the presentations, which were amazing. So yeah, practicing faith survey was uh, a real take home. Now the last plenary session was given by a man named Ken Badley. Uh, I need to double check what school he's from, but I want to say he's from Tyndale University College. Yeah. Oh, nailed it. Ken Badley, Tyndale University College. And he was uh, presenting on something called design before planning. And I thought that this was I thought this was great. He was a really funny guy. He was really good at um, explaining uh, just what I would call good unit design. But the cool thing that he does is he differentiates between planning and design. Planning and and daily activities, like things that people and and educators do on the daily, is different than design. And everything he talks about design when it comes to designing a course, designing a unit, has an architectural uh, connotation. So every uh, everything he would use to explain uh, design would have to do with the design of a building and would have to do with the design of a city. So he talks about how some buildings look more inviting than others and, and what, it's, what changes between those two architectural designs and how does that change between our units? How do we make a unit that's more inviting? He talks about entrances and exits and how entrances, is it's literally the way to let them in to what it is that you are trying to teach them and exits are the way that you are trying to get them out of the lesson. So he talks about exit slips and whatnot, which is um, good practice, but then also, so bringing students in, get in, and well, not getting them out, you know what I mean, but but ass- assessment is like, what are, they, what are they learning as they leave the doors? He talks also about um, another really good point that he talked about was like sidewalks and paths and how so often we see that there's been a sidewalk that's been laid or a path that's been laid, but then just to the side of it on the grass, you can see the grass is really worn down because actually the quicker way was to go this way. And that's the way that the students wanted to go. 
And that as we lay our educational sidewalks, we need to continue to um, put them in places where students will want to go and, and, and pull the students in, in, in that direction as we teach. He also talks about green spaces, which I thought was really interesting. And he brought in the idea of Sabbath and how in a city that's full of concrete, it's the green space that brings a break. He shows a picture of Central Park and Manhattan and, and how that makes a difference in the city planning and how that makes a difference in our units. So he was talking about the weeks and weeks and weeks of, of nonstop um, teaching and learning that we sometimes go through that sometimes actually that green space within our unit is that rest within our unit is so important and he he does all this under the umbrella of beauty truth and goodness and he says that those are three themes that are often woven together and it's woven together throughout scripture as it is also uh, woven through any design whether that's designing uh, a building or designing uh, what it is that we are doing as teachers. So uh, that was really cool. It, uh, it was just a really great presentation um, to hear him talk about all these different things, uh, especially through an architectural lens. And uh, uh, he actually has a book. And the book is called... The book is called Curriculum Planning with Design Language. So uh, that would be something that I think is very useful. It was the most, uh, I would say, like like a lot of the stuff beforehand was like a, an interesting mix of philosophical, pedagogical, and this was just so much to do with like, like hands-on teaching design, like what it is that we're doing, which was really cool. And it was just a very cool frame to hear as well. So thank you, Ken Badley, for sharing at... Uh, at Shaping Christian Learning. Uh, and thank you to all the presenters and everyone that it is that we got to connect with. It was just, um, yeah, it was a real highlight. It was so affirming to go and hear all these different uh, speakers who are trying to further the same conversation that I so desperately want to be a part of and that I, am, that I am a part of being a teacher in Christian education. And then obviously coming home and then being able to use this podcast as a means for uh, also um, taking it one step further. So uh, thank you for listening and thank you for uh, thank you for the conference, the Kyers Institute, to Inch, uh, David Smith, and all those people that are so um, so deeply entrenched in this amazing conversation. So uh, thank you to everyone. Uh, that's where we're going to wrap up our highlights from Shaping Christian Learning. Stay tuned for the Grand Paradox uh, Book Club. Hey guys, Riley here, and I am bringing you the next installment of our Grand Paradox Book Club. So we're on chapter two, which is called Paradox, and this was a great chapter. Really enjoyed this one. It starts with a William Shakespeare quotation, which says, Such welcome and unwelcome things at once, tis hard to reconcile. And the title of this chapter is Paradox, so I find that a very uh, fitting uh, subtitle and quote to include. And I thought that this was a really great chapter for a number of reasons. When I think about high school student faith formation, just as a reminder, this is the book that was given to our, the graduates of the school that I teach at as they walk across the stage. And for those that would actually read this, I think that this would be a really uh, useful chapter because it does say some pretty jarring things. So, um, the first thing that stood out to me that uh, he's he's talking about Michel de Montaigne, which is a uh, he was a, a writer from a, the 1500s, 
And he talks about how this guy addressed the age old central question, how should we live? And he says that Montaigne was among many of the great thinkers and writers in history who discovered that life is fraught with paradox and so is faith. Further down in the chapter, there was another great uh, quote talking about that um, when uh, he was growing up in the Netherlands, he was told that if he ever went on thin ice and fell through the ice, that he should swim to the dark, not to the light, because for the dark, uh, sorry, let me, um, because the ice itself looks white from underneath while the hole in the ice, the path of salvation appears dark. So just an example of paradox and how seem things may seem backwards. And then you would think that someone would, would say that the next thing after this will actually scripture undoes our paradox or that it really, um, helps us and, and whatnot, or, or however you'd like to say it, but in his next subheading, it says scripture doesn't help. And he gives a bunch of paradoxes or paradigm, I don't know, paradoxes that are in the Bible. So uh, in Luke two, the angels sing glory to God in the highest heaven uh, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then later in Luke 12, Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but uh, I tell you, but division. Um, so just an example of that. And then further along talking about how, uh, Jesus talking about that. If everyone wants to, uh, follow him, you have to hate your mother and your, your brother and your sister, but then he takes such loving care of his own mother. Uh, and then finally talking about how Paul says that we're saved by faith, not works. And James says that without works, faith is worthless. So just examples on how scripture doesn't always help, which I find to be uh, quite quite jarring, especially for someone who may be in grade 12, uh, just finishing Christian education. Oh, look who just walked in the door. Hey, Dave. Hi. Just doing some grand paradox. Dave is bringing me my coffee while I am. Um, uh, expound upon chapter two of the grand paradox. Uh, following that, uh, he talks about living the questions and how Henry Nouwen was uh, a great writer. Actually, Henry Nouwen was someone that heavily influenced my, my dad and his, uh, faith journey, especially in like the last 15 years or so. And talking about what that is to live the questions that faith engenders. Is that a word? Engenders? Oh, it says plural. Oh. Whatever. To wait on the Lord, to pray our pain, to accept confusion. Accept confusion. That's something that, that we don't always, uh, we're not always uh, quick to, ugh, I can't think of a better word, but to accept. We really like trite cookie cutter answers. Yeah, like I'm thinking about like Christian radio. Like Christian radio does not accept confusion. It's uplifting and encouraging and, and whatever it is that you'd like. Um. But then I realized that someone might think, if you don't finish this chapter, you'd think that Ken is essentially just unraveling a bunch of nonsense and that he's not going anywhere. But I think that's the best part of this book is that he is, um, which is great because, man, I didn't even know about this book. Like, I, I literally just picked this up just by recommendation of, of our other colleagues and it's going somewhere, which is cool. But he talks about zero visibility landings that, uh, that, uh, airplane pilots have to, to take on and how sometimes in a paradox, there's zero visibility. 
but that um, zero visibility landings can only be accomplished when you have total faith and trust in what your instruments are telling you, even when your senses contradict what you see plainly before you. So the paradoxical nature of the Christian life can give us an awkward sense of not knowing up from down. But I have learned that God commands our trust in his promises and our reliance on his guidance. Are the, and those are the instruments by which we fly. And I think that really... Um, I laid the connection to that in the first chapter where he talks about the centrality of God in the Joshua story and that in this fog and whatever it is, we hold on to the true presence of God uh, within the mystery and we trust. And then he, uh, he quotes Proverbs, Proverbs 3, which talks about, uh, this is a classic verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. Um, and I think that's beautiful, but that is actually what brings me the next, my, my question, but I'll answer, I will ask my question at the end of this. He says also, this, this is the best part in this paragraph. Well, this whole, this whole section on lost in the clouds is just trusting, trusting, trusting. So he says that we are rather simply trusting God in God's leading, trusting that he is good, trusting that even if we don't like where he takes us, he's taking us there for a reason. So trust, trust, trust. So many theologians uh, and many, uh, Bible translators will say that uh, the Greek word for faith can actually be retranslated as trust, and that maybe if we reread the passages and they say trust instead of faith. Fiducia. Yeah, fiducia. Yeah, actually throwback to a, a previous episode with um, Irv Duick, my, my own dad, but that we actually might have a better understanding of the text if we use the word trust instead. So to close the chapter, he brings up a Catch-22, which I had heard about the book Catch-22, but uh, I didn't actually know what a Catch-22 was. And uh, the way that he explains it really does do a great job of um, coming to terms with what this paradox is supposed to mean, because it does seem like, like, come on, I, I could see someone reading this and saying, come on, Ken, like land the plane. Like, like, I guess I get it's confusing, but like, like bring it down. And this was, this was just such a great way to, uh, talk about, and he talks about, um, a catch 22, um, and that, uh, in the air force in world war two, the rigors of air combat uh, could drive a pilot crazy. And recognizing this hazard and not wanting its ranks to be filled with crazy airmen, the Air Force instituted a voluntary process for identifying such men. Pilots in the squadron were given the option of taking a psychological evaluation. If they were declared insane, they would be released from further combat. So it's a, a bit of a, a way that you could potentially get out of your service in the military. But the interesting thing is that um, the, there is a catch called a catch-22 that requesting psychological evaluation was deemed proof of an airman's sanity since it would be crazy to not seek a, rele seek a release from further combat duty. A catch-22 is not a paradox. Instead, it's a hopeless trap of frustrating, inescapable circularity. So I, th that's, that's really great because he says, well, in the next sentence, that our tendency is to think that the paradox of faith is a catch-22. And this is where we're landing the plane, that it's not a hopeless trap. But the catch-22 isn't the whole story. The contradiction is broken by the presence of God. And he t talks about that in the first chapter as well. Um, so God promises a path through paradox. And then he closes the chapter by saying that faith is the art of living forward in obedience, not in the absence of questions like these, but in the face of them. Faith marches through the paradox.
This is a great chapter. It really was. Uh, I'm just going to ask Dave a question here as I, as I, as I think, but um, you're talking about obedience here. Long obedience in the same direction. Is that Eugene Peterson? Yeah. So that's, that's a quote that came to mind as well. Long obedience in the same direction. Yeah. Um, and, and how we, we have that within the paradox. And then my, my question for this chapter, because he makes the claim that scripture can be unhelpful, and I, I agree, he uses scripture, specifically the Proverbs, talks about trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. And I would love to hear his take about other Proverbs, because if you would like a space for contradiction, the book of Proverbs could be one where you could have a, a, a very long list. He, he, like, he talks about Jesus's contradictions and Paul and James's contradictions, but Proverbs is, is good fodder for um, atheists who are trying to prove the Bible wrong and that it's full of contradictions. So um, I would just be curious as to his take on the use of the book of Proverbs, but that would be my, that would be my main question. Everything else in this chapter was so valuable. I, I have many underlines. It's kind of funny. I thought that this book club thing would be just like couple minute sections, like one highlight, one question, move on. And here I am, I've been talking for 11 minutes now or, or something or other. Uh, so uh, that's really great. It's nice when you get hooked by a book like this. So uh, thank you for listening. If you haven't picked up a copy of The Grand Paradox, we are not sponsored in any capacity. This is just something we're doing in our own pleasure time, but uh, we'd encourage you. Yeah, we'd actually love to hear from Ken. That would be really cool. And, and then see what, see what his take is on, on, well, here's another question. See what his take is on the faith formation of youth and, and how that impacts Christian education and how the paradox breathes through that. So thank you for listening. Go pick up a copy of the book if you want to follow along or just keep following along in your earbuds. But uh, at the end of the day, if you really enjoyed the episode, we would love it if you subscribed on the app of your choice and to give us a good review that helps us spread the good news that not many of you should become teachers. And it also uh, helps us further the conversation. But the other place that we're trying to further this conversation is on Twitter. So if you have Twitter, you can follow us at not many of you. And if you're looking for show notes, resources, all of our episodes, you can find that at notmanyofyou.com. Uh, thanks again for listening. We will see you uh, in a bit. Thanks. Bye.